beloved member, let us unite in the true method of spiritual preparation for cosmic attunement during this period of work and worship here in your holy sanctum. This is your holy of holies, and here is where the consciousness of God and the great masters dwell with you when you petition for such divine blessings. Now that you are about to begin a sacred period of study and unfoldment, let us invoke the presence of God and the heavenly hosts. God of our hearts, creator of all living beings everywhere, and father of all humankind, we beseech thy presence here and now. Will you come with me for a few minutes into the mental, spiritual world and dwell in the cathedral of the soul?
Welcome back to Para Power Mapping. It's the second part of our surprise doubleheader. My name's Klani Gosh, and I guess this technically makes it the fifth episode of this podcast already. Wow, the time flies. Well, sit back and strap yourself in for our mapping of... William Pynchon's 17th century fur trading network, his founding of Springfield, and involvement in the Hugh and Mary Parsons witchcraft case, as well as a discussion of themes of colonization, empire, and even Rosicrucianism in Thomas Pynchon's work. But before we do we're going to return for just a few moments to our history of John Winthrop the Younger and his Rosicrucian and Alchemical Plantation project in New London, Connecticut. Winthrop the Younger's settlement caused a series of rifts in the social fabric of the colonial frontier. As we noted, New London was built in the Pequot village of Namiog, and Winthrop had his father and the other New England colonial authorities to thank for decimating the Pequot populations. By the time that Winthrop was settling, the Pequot were so reduced that it appears they welcomed Winthrop the Younger who positioned himself as their protector and tried to present himself as a power. Decisions that would lead to disputes between Winthrop, the Connecticut colony, and a chief of the Mohegans named Uncas, or Uncas. Winthrop's alchemical plantation also caused tension between him and his father. Although Winthrop Sr. supported his son's alchemical pursuits in principle, and even allowed him to build a chemical furnace in his Boston home and store texts and chemicals there, Woodward writes that Winthrop Sr. had serious spiritual misgivings about his son's enthusiasm for pansific reforms, and also was concerned by how his son's handling of relations with local indigenous tribes was causing unrest. There was also a brief backlash against alchemical practitioners in New England in the early 1640s, seemingly a residual anxiety left over from the antinomian controversy that caused Puritan authorities to react against alchemical practitioners and those perceived to be more religiously tolerant for a time. So this likely contributed to the heightened fractiousness in the colonies. Winthrop the Younger's arrival in Connecticut and relationship with the Pequot upset Uncas, the Mohegan chieftain, 
who aimed to absorb as many surviving Pequot people into his tribe as possible, so as to bolster his regional supremacy. He was also deeply desirous of the Pequot lands. Trigger Warning The Pequot War was full of such unspeakable atrocities sponsored by the Massachusetts and Connecticut authorities. Bounties were paid to allied Mohegan and Narragansett warriors that brought the heads or hands of Pequot combatants. So messed up. By the end of the war, Woodward estimates that Massachusetts and Connecticut leaders had enslaved upwards of 300 Pequot people in their homes, the majority women and children. And we know for certain that the Winthrop family were party to these atrocities and benefited in myriad ways from the Pequot War as we're demonstrating. Here's a quote from Robert H. Romer's Slavery in the Connecticut Valley of Massachusetts that once again shows Winthrop Sr.'s advocacy for the institution of indigenous and African slavery in the colonies. Big quote. At the conclusion of that war, largely fought in Connecticut, numerous captured Pequots were sold into slavery in the Indies. Here, for instance, is Governor Winthrop writing to his fellow governor, William Bradford of Plymouth Plantation in 1637. Quote, Worthy sir, my desire is to acquaint you with the Lord's great mercies towards us in our prevailing against his and our enemies, that you may rejoice and praise his name with us. About eighty of our men met here and there with some Pequots, whom they slew or took as prisoners. Two sachems they took and beheaded. Upon the thirteenth of this month, they lit upon a great company of them, eighty strong men and two hundred women and children. The prisoners were divided, some to those of the river, and the rest to us. Of these we send the male children to Bermuda by Mr. William Pierce, and the women and maid children are disposed about in the towns. There have now been slain and taken in all about seven hundred. The rest are dispersed, and the Indians in all quarters so terrified as all their friends are afraid to receive them. End quote. We noted earlier that it was the Salem ship Desire, with Mr. Pierce as captain, that brought the first known cargo of black slaves to Massachusetts in 1638, bringing from the West Indies, 
quote, some cotton and tobacco and Negroes, etc., end quote. On the outward trip of the very same voyage, as indicated in Winthrop's letter, the desire had taken Pequot captives to be sold into slavery. According to an entry in Winthrop's journal, the captives were supposed to be sent to Bermuda and sold, but Captain Pyrrhus overshot Bermuda by about 2,000 miles and took them to Providence Island, the other Puritan colony, instead. Most of the female Indian captives, at least those in this group, were apparently kept and enslaved in Massachusetts. Winthrop himself owned Indian slaves. In a will drawn up in 1639, he wrote, quote, I give to my son Adam my land called the governor's garden, to have to him and his heirs forever, not doubting, but he will be dutiful and loving to his mother and kind to his brethren in letting them partake in such fruits as grow there. I give him also my Indians there and my boat and such household as there is. End quote. And a big end quote. Fuck. Depressing stuff. Um, the the Romer book is um, eye-opening and really good, but a tough read. This is what I meant by the title of the previous episode, Human Alchemy. This process of enslavement that created the intergenerational wealth of the Boston Brahmin class and transmuted America on a human and environmental level. Remember how, in the previous episode, I mentioned that we'd be talking a fair bit about the Caribbean, Bermuda and Barbados especially. Well, this is largely due to the slavery trade relationships that were already being established between the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the English holdings in the Caribbean as early as the 1630s and 40s. Remember, the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay colonies were younger than most of you listening out there at that time. From the very beginning of the separatist and puritanical colonization of New England, the Pilgrims and Puritans were endeavoring to enslave indigenous Americans and Africans to bear the brunt of the frontier labor burden, not to mention pad their pockets through the lucrative trade itself. John Winthrop Sr. literally bequeathed numerous native slaves to his son Adam in a 1639 will. So these were the conditions for the Pequot of Namiog at the time that Winthrop the Younger broke ground on his alchemical plantation in 1645. Those who had survived the war and avoided enslavement had been doubtlessly terrorized beyond belief 
by the white man and were justifiably terrified. So it's understandable why they would ally themselves with Winthrop the Younger, who Woodward argues had successfully presented himself as a powerful English power, meaning a shaman and leader, through his ministrations of alchemical remedies and powerful kinship relations. Uncas was not happy with this arrangement, though, as he intended to extract tributes from the Pequots and assert Mohegan power in the region. The power struggles throughout the frontier were complicated further by the fact that, loosely, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was allied with the Narragansett and the Connecticut with the Mohegan, and that each colony was vying to claim the formerly Pequot lands around New London. Following the Pequot War, Uncas began to marry the widows of deceased powerful Pequot and grant surviving Pequot warriors sanctuary as a part of his larger plan to build up Mohegan regional hegemony. So Winthrop granting the Pequot people of Namiug, his protection was a perceived slap in the face for Uncas, who saw them as his tributaries, and this slight led to open confrontation. Before we get to that, though, as Woodward points out, Uncas's stock among the Connecticut and Massachusetts authorities was growing. The post-war Massachusetts colony and Narragansett alliance had fallen apart, and the Narragansett leader, Miantonomi, had begun to work towards a larger alliance of native tribes in New England. The colonies, threatened by this prospect, enlisted Uncas and asked him to kill the rival leader, which Uncas did. So Winthrop the Younger's commitment to his alchemical plantation scheme and belief in the ultimate profitability of his Tontiusk mine site and use of the Thames watershed must have been immense as he and the other English alchemists that joined him there were walking into this fraught intertribal and intercolony conflict. According to Woodward, Winthrop the Younger was considered an unusually effective negotiator with the indigenous he came into contact with and he credits this and Winthrop's desire to understand native power dynamics with helping him establish his relationship with Robin Kasakinamon, the sachem of the 500 Pequot who were living at Namiog. Woodward claims that Winthrop, although undoubtedly racist, and similar to his contemporaries in his belief that the English were superior to their indigenous neighbors, 
believed that it was incumbent upon the English to understand local power dynamics and not vice versa. Woodward says that Winthrop actually gained this softer colonial attitude from fellow alchemist Edward Howes, who evidently was the first to call Winthrop the Sagamore of Agawam or Agawam, the settlement that Winthrop Jr. had founded previously, which is today called Ipswich. Sagamore is another native term for a political leader of a tribe. We can also blame Howes for encouraging Winthrop to bring indigenous, quote, servants into his household, end quote, which, if we haven't already explained, the word servant literally denotes slave in colonial New England, pretty much all the way up to the eventual abolition of slavery in the Massachusetts Constitution following the War of Independence. Servant should be read to mean slave. So here we have confirmation from Woodward that Winthrop kept enslaved natives in his household. Howes was also involved in Winthrop's efforts at Christianizing and assimilating the local Pequot into European culture, as he sent him books of quote-unquote syntax and rhetoric to aid Winthrop in his efforts to teach the Pequot English. Woodward speculates that these books were written by another alchemist and natural philosopher named Thomas Harriet, who had participated in the ill-fated Roanoke colony that was organized by another possible Rosicrucian and acquaintance of D. and Bacon's, Sir Walter Raleigh. So this kind of quote-unquote soft colonization seems characteristic of these alchemy-loving, pansophism-stanning Rosicrucians that we're profiling in these episodes. Maybe that's a bad way of characterizing it. What I mean to say is that I'm noticing that these more liberal, religiously tolerant, and learned Puritans are often presented as more humane towards their indigenous neighbors, but I feel like that's bullshit. People like Winthrop the Younger and Edward Howes were still after exactly the same things as the rest of the colonial authorities. They wanted to see the indigenous subjugated and assimilated into the Puritan colonies. The primary distinction between someone like a Winthrop the Younger and a Cotton Mather is that Winthrop the Younger viewed, in the words of Woodward, the indigenous as quote-unquote inferior allies, whereas Mather literally savaged and dehumanized them with his words and threw around incendiary conspiracy theories that local indigenous were in league with the devil. At the other end of the colonist spectrum, you have someone like Thomas Morton who, although he was racist, 
was enough of an ally to the Ninemissinuak people in Massachusetts and Maine that he sold-slash-traded them weapons and advocated for peaceful cohabitation between the English and Native Americans in New English Canaan. So although Winthrop the Younger doesn't seem as bloodthirsty as someone like his father— or Colonel Israel Stoughton, or even Cotton Mather, his willingness to administer Helmontian alchemical medicines to the local indigenous and colonists still strikes me as self-serving, an effective means of building himself up to mythic proportions and maintaining his power over colonized and colonizer. Winthrop's attempts to operate within indigenous power dynamics indicates to me that he was a savvy operator more than that he had a genuine human concern for the local Pequot. Oh, this is actually a rad story. A great counter-revolutionary moment from early colonial New England history where Uncas and Robin Kasakinemon actually got one up on grumpy and shitty old John Winthrop the Elder. So Robin Kasakinemon, who was the sachem of the Namiog Pequot, and would actually serve as a quote-unquote servant in Winthrop the Younger's home in New London, first enters the colonial record following the Pequot War, where he is described as a tributary of Uncas. During the period that the Mohegan Sachem was strategically wifing up at an impressive speed so as to build power, Uncas decided to marry one of the women who Winthrop Sr. had enslaved in his household. So he sent Robin Kasakinemon and nine other men to Boston, to secure the release of the enslaved Pequot woman, with instructions to offer Governor Winthrop, quote, ten fathoms, sixty feet, of wampum, as compensation for the woman, end quote. This story was evidently recorded by the Quaker and Rhode Island leader Roger Williams, who had heard it from a native informant, if Winthrop Sr. refused to release Uncas's bride-to-be, Robin was supposed to hide by Winthrop's Boston compound until the fall of darkness, help the woman escape, and ferry her safely to Uncas's camp. It appears this is what happened, as Robin ultimately claimed the ten fathoms of wampum for himself. Sucks to suck, old man Winthrop. Fuck you! <laughs> Unfortunately, the team of Uncas and Robin Kasakinemon didn't last once Winthrop the Younger entered the scene in New London, as we've already detailed. Also, I said it in passing a second ago, but note that Winthrop appears to have literally enslaved Robin Kasakinemon the sachem of the Pequot, in Namiog, 
if our understanding of Woodward's use of servant is correct. Robin Kasakinamon would also act as Winthrop's land-purchasing agent. Woodward describes their relationship as symbiotic, but I'm not so sure. What is certain is Uncas was not happy with Robin and the other Namiog villagers' relationship with Winthrop. Woodward describes how Winthrop was hitting the alchemical furnace as soon as it was up and running in New London. He quotes an English colonist named John Arundel, or Arundel, who visited the plantation shortly after its construction and marveled at the site, saying, quote, I believed I was consulting the oracles of the tripod or the pharmacy of Esculapius, end quote. The Oracles of the Tripod is, of course, a reference to the Oracle of Delphi, from ancient Greece. The Oracle, called the Pythia or Sibyl, would sit atop a tripod, above a chasm in the Temple of Apollo, out of which the noxious vapors of the decomposing body of the Titan Python emanated. It was these vapors, possibly ethylene or ethane, that would possess the Pythia and enable her to prophesy. According to Woodward, Winthrop utilized the spectacle of his alchemical laboratory and the Paracelsian and Helmontian remedies he used when healing his indigenous neighbors as a means of further consolidating his power among the Pequot and other Connecticuters. Despite Winthrop the Younger's success at wielding power and influence over the Pequot of Namiog, Woodward argues that he seriously misjudged the strength of Uncas and the Mohegan, who had grown from 400 to 600 members at the end of the Pequot War, to 2,500 by 1643, and Uncas's alliance with the colonial government of Connecticut. In 1646, Uncas and a war band, 300 strong, jogged into New London. At Uncas's word, the warriors split up into squadrons and began destroying the Pequot wigwams in the town, and even slashing and beating up the indigenous villagers. The warband stole the Pequot wampum, various skins, baskets, and even some of Winthrop's wampum, and a few coats owned by the Reverend Peters. The warriors stripped the Pequot villagers naked, chased them into the water of the Thames Bay or the ocean itself, and even shot at them, based on the account from the commissioners of the United Colonies, from a September 1646 meeting. Winthrop, of course, was in Boston when this occurred, but he was incensed 
he appealed to the commissioners of the United Colonies, assuming that Uncas would receive a harsh reprimand. But like Woodward noted earlier, Winthrop had misjudged the degree to which Connecticut and the Mohegans were allied, and so his appeal largely fell on deaf ears. Quoting Woodward, quote, Winthrop's unannounced arrival in the Pequot region from Massachusetts, coupled with his self-proclaimed assumption of the role of English protector of the Pequots, had offended more than Uncas. It also generated negative attitudes among Connecticut's magistrates, end quote. Connecticut and the United Colonies ended up siding with Uncas, who they saw as an important ally in the larger realpolitik, power dynamics of life on the frontier. Part of Uncas's grudge with the Pequot and English of New London had to do with the fact that they had contracted with the Niantic, Sachem, Wikwashkuk to hunt for them, and because the Niantic were Uncas and the Mohegan's sworn enemy, and because this hunting contract meant that the Niantic were traveling through and or hunting in Uncas's lands, which bordered New London, the commissioners of the United Colonies decided, unequivocally, that Uncas's harassment of the Pequot and English villagers had been within his rights, a rare instance in which the relationship with an indigenous ally was prioritized over an English grievance. For the Pequot and the English villagers, caught up in the violence, it was undoubtedly terrifying and traumatic. But for Winthrop the Younger, it was only a momentary hiccup in his larger ascent in colonial governance and alchemical pursuits. Even so, Winthrop's alchemical plantation scheme suffered other frustrations in its first five years. His fellow alchemist, horticulturist, and buddy, Robert Child, returned to New England in 1646, excited about the prospects for pansific reforms and economic development. But shortly after his arrival, Child began to chafe against the puritanical and religiously intolerant nature of the colonies. The Presbyterian Child threw his lot in with a group of dissidents who addressed complaints to the colonial magistrates, demanding the same political enfranchisement and church membership privileges that they would receive were they living in England. The colonial authorities did not take kindly to this, levying child with a humongous 200-pound fine and placing him under house arrest for the next year. Winthrop's association with child's crew 
brought further scrutiny on his plantation. Woodward describes how, fresh off the antinomian controversy, this newest scandal caused the Plymouth Colony's agent in England, Edward Winslow, to publish a pamphlet declaring Robert Child a papist, and speculating that his interest in New England's natural resources were a form of industrial sabotage, essentially, and that he was a Jesuit working on behalf of the Catholic Church. In Puritan New and Old England, these were fighting words, man. Robert Child was prob like, What is this devilish jest, this unforgivable ludibrium? Fie on ye, ye ale-drenched scoundrel Winslow. I shall give ye an upbraiding ye shan't soon forget, bitch. Where's my goddamn pamphlet pen? That was, that was terrible. I'm sorry, folks. Sometimes I just feel this pressure to pepper you with a shitty joke or two. I want to keep you on your toes so you don't get bored of me, but... I promise I won't do any Middle English jokes ever again. Swear. But anyways, remember good old George Starkey, a.k.a. Irenaeus Philolithes, who we mentioned in Historica Materia Ultima? Well, Starkey was also placed under house arrest for two years prior to emigrating to his home country with Colonel Israel Stoughton et al. So in the late 1640s, there was a bit of a pushback against alchemical practitioners among the colonial elite in New England. It was short-lived, though. Meanwhile, Winnie Jr. kept after consolidating his power in the region, particularly because his riverine silver mine scheme depended on him transporting the ore through multiple tribal areas. According to Woodward, John the Younger succeeded to a large degree, establishing a quote-unquote special relationship with the Pequot and impressing the Niantic and Narragansett as well. The ins and outs of the power struggle between Winthrop, Uncas, and the Pequot, and the Connecticut colony government are certainly interesting, but we're going to skip over some of it just because it's a little outside the focus of these episodes. There was more back and forth. At one point, Winthrop and various Pequot and Niantic presented a petition to request that they be permitted to remain under Winthrop's protection to the United Colony Commissioners, but they were rebuffed. Winthrop didn't immediately comply, and eventually... A military commander named Mason was sent with Uncas to fetch his tributaries. Even so, many of the Pequot who had been forced to return to life in Uncas's tribe escaped and returned to New London. But suffice to say, 
despite the initial blowback from his attempt at protecting the Pequot of Namiog, and essentially absorbing them into his settlement, Winthrop would ultimately emerge victorious on an individual level, going on to become the governor of Connecticut a few years later. Definitely check out Woodward's Prospero's America if you want to learn more about how the squabble between Uncas, Winthrop, etc. unfolded. The converging difficulties of Winthrop's volatile dynamic with Uncas, Robert Child's house arrest and eventual return to England, etc., ended up throwing a bit of a wrench in Winthrop's alchemical plan. Between the fact that transporting the ore to the harbor was being obstructed by Uncas and the occasional raid by the Mohegan, Winthrop began to realize that his grand vision of drawing the greatest minds of Europe to New London was unlikely in the immediate. Although he may have revised his goals, he still persisted and focused on attracting American alchemists to his colony instead. Despite some of these slight setbacks, Winthrop was certainly thriving, as he'd recently purchased land on Long Island. He left her in Buffalo 
Dead as the leaves in Union Square And dead as the graveyard sea The eyes of a new first chorus for a minute. I'm just now putting two and two together, and guess what? One of the members of Robert Child's group of dissidents, criticizing the religious intolerance of the Puritan colonies, was William Pynchon, Thomas Pynchon's colonial ancestor. I think we briefly mentioned William Pynchon in one of the previous installments, but let's add some detail to our portrait of the guy. So William Pynchon was more than just a hugely successful trader. You'll remember from the previous installment that we mentioned that he ran a trade network that snaked past one of Winthrop the Younger's mine sites. William Pynchon was also the founder of Roxbury, a neighborhood in Boston, and later Springfield. When we examine the details of Pynchon's life, we'll notice that he and Winthrop the Younger shared a number of characteristics and approaches to colonial governance. In fact, the Pynchons and the Winthrops appear to have had a long-term and mutually beneficial familial partnership in business, politics, and colonization. Pynchon was born in Kelmsford, Essex in England, to a prestigious property-owning family. As a younger man, he served as the churchwarden of his local Anglican parish, a laity position generally occupied by successful individuals. According to Malcolm Gaskell's The Ruin of All Witches, a recently published book-length appraisal of the witch panic in the western Massachusetts town of Springfield, which preceded the Salem Witch Trials, Although Pynchon was descended from wealth in England, he was in financial straits prior to his emigration. Make no mistake, the dude was way better off than the vast majority of English in the late 1620s. But as Gaskell writes, because primogeniture was no longer practiced in that part of England, he had had to split his father John's property eight ways with his other siblings. Also, although William Pynchon was an English gentry, his line of the family weren't the heirs to the manor in Rittle. 
the village they're from. Pynchon married his first wife in 1618 to illustrate the economic hardships that the English were experiencing at the time. Gaskell writes how peasants were rioting, and some people were even reduced to eating dogs. These conditions were caused, in part, by England's economic isolation in the midst of the Thirty Years' War. Apparently, William Pynchon acted like a shitty hall monitor as churchwarden in his village in England, as he, quote, brought before the church court oath-swearers, tipplers, I'm not sure what that is, gamblers, unlicensed victuallers, and defaulters in the upkeep of bridges and roads, end quote. William Pynchon was the fucking Matthew Iglesias of 17th century England, I guess going around and reporting sod carts for having expired plates and registration or some shit. According to Gaskell, William Pynchon was, at heart, a Puritan conformist and tended towards praying for the reform of the Church of England, more so than doing something about it himself. Even so, he began to befriend various Puritan separatists prior to emigrating to New England. It appears that it was these relationships and his financial precarities that led him to decide to move his family to New England. This fact that William Pynchon cut against the grain of the Calvinist Puritans that he threw his lot in with would ultimately lead to another doctrinal controversy when he published his heretical text. And when I say he cut against the grain, I mean that Pynchon was actually for a time a member of the Church of England. In the 1620s, I believe, Pynchon would hear a sermon by the pastor Henry Smith that would leave a big impression on him and read a book by another theologian named Hugh Broughton, germinating the seed of Pynchon's controversial beliefs in the nature of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Pynchon differed from his fellow colonizers in his biblical exegesis, arguing against interpretations of the crucifixion as an act of God's wrath, and instead that Christ had made a quote-unquote meritorious sacrifice to redeem Adam and humankind of our sins. Pynchon averred that Christ's ultimate act of obedience to the Father redeemed Adam's disobedience prior to the fall. Another element of Pynchon's biblical exegesis that scandalized the Puritans was his insistence on Satan's role in tempting, quote, Christ's tormentors, end quote, to crucify Jesus, a belief which, if taken to its logical conclusion, likely appeared almost Manichaean to the Puritans of the colonies. 
So, from what I can tell, Pynchon assailed Puritan Calvinist doctrine from closer to the Anglican side of the spectrum, whereas folks like Anne Hutchinson sent shockwaves on the other end with their antinomian beliefs. This is what's so curious about Puritan belief in predestination. In one instance, people like Hutchinson could argue that the spiritually elect, by virtue of being God's chosen people, did not have to comply with the Ten Commandments or moral codes. Socially subversive ideas that the Puritan elite could not abide, of course. At the same time, you had Anglican interlopers in their midst, who little by little would try to chip away at predestination and providentialism, re-emphasizing the importance of worldly works and decisions. Quick aside, a couple other ministers that came from mere miles from Springfield and who Pynchon undoubtedly knew were Thomas Hooker, a firebrand minister who Pynchon heard sermonize, and who exorcised demons from a possessed woman, and his assistant, John Eliot, who would later become one of those insatiable proselytizers of Native Americans. Quote, Pynchon and Hooker had a friend in common, a Suffolk gentleman named John Winthrop. The Puritan world of the Stour Valley was a small one, busy with correspondence, meetings, and quote-unquote gadding to sermons. Like many Puritans, Winthrop and Pynchon combined devotion and business news which they were eager to apply in the New World, where, according to the Mayflower pilgrim Edward Winslow, see Edward Winslow again, man, he's all over this episode, quote, religion and prophet jump together, end quote. That was a saying from Edward Winslow. Winthrop's plans to emigrate were far advanced, he secured a royal patent for the Massachusetts Bay Company, a project he led with five others. There were also 20 associates, one of whom was Pynchon. End quote. Actually, I should say big end quote. I forgot the whole big quote, big end quote system. Apologies. But yeah, that was all from Gaskell's The uh, Ruin of All Witches. Pynchon's pre-existing relationship with Winthrop Sr., and the fact that he was one of the original patent holders of the Massachusetts Bay Company, further illustrate his elevated status as a member of the Puritan elite. It also likely means that he knew Sir Ferdinando Gorgas. It's worthwhile to point out that Although the economic incentives of colonization often get papered over by the religious ones, at least a few of these colonies began as companies and money-making ventures prior to receiving their royal charters. 
And it def seems like Pynchon's motivations for colonization more financial than anything else. Pynchon invested 25 pounds in the Massachusetts Bay Company prior to their emigration, which certainly wasn't chump change at the time, receiving a share of land and proceeds in return. So Pynchon sailed across the Atlantic on the Ambrose, one of the ships in the retinue that included the flagship Arbella, the ship on which Winthrop delivered the City on a Hill sermon. Remember how early in this episode we were talking up just how much of a reality starvation was for the early colonists in New England? Well, on the 1630 voyage that brought Pynchon and Winthrop Sr. to America, all of the cattle died prior to landing. In that first year, Pynchon settled near Dorchester in an area named Squantum Neck, which is present-day Roxbury. And like I said, shit was hard. His wife was one of 200 who perished that first year, from starvation and exposure to the elements. Despite recently losing his wife, William Pynchon was already speculating in land and furs. He was also a member of the governing Court of Assistance, continuing his Iglesias Hall Monitor ways by punishing settlers for letting their pigs escape or selling guns to indigenous Americans. Needless to say, William Pynchon was no Thomas Morton. Even though he was more peaceful in his approach to colonization, like his buddy John Winthrop the Younger, he was still one of the fearful Puritan majority who were desperate to ensure their quote-unquote technological superiority over the indigenous Americans. Pynchon was also acting as the treasurer of the Massachusetts Bay Company at this time. So yes, he definitely was a part of the Puritan ruling elite. I'm going to take a little drink of water here. Quote, After the biting winter of 1632, when many died of fever, New England was afflicted by great swarms of strange flies up and down the country, an omen some feared of greater mortality to come. The following year, Pynchon went into business with John Winthrop, importing cloth from England in return for sea coal and beaver pelts. Pynchon became his own ideal merchant, experienced and confident, yet rigidly scrupulous. He took a new boat to the trading posts of Maine, where Indians bought furs, mostly in early winter, when beaver had grown thick coats. Pynchon purchased the skins, packed them in barrels, and sent them to London, where the fur was made into felt for hats. But soon a scarcity of beaver 
coupled with a desire to control the fur trade, led Pynchon's thoughts a hundred miles westward, where the forested valleys and capillaries of rivers and streams were the perfect habitat for beaver, otter, muskrat, marten, lynx, and moose. End quote. William Pynchon and his family left Roxbury, frustrated by its rocky soil. For Agawam, or Agawam, in 1636, right around the time of the Pequot War. I wonder if that's a coincidence. Also an aside, but another example of the batshit providentialism of the Puritan elite. Trigger warning. Pynchon chose to settle Agawam not long after the antinomian controversy as well. Quote, Others decided to leave due to the harsh treatment of antinomians at Boston. Antinomians were radicals who rejected the laws of man, including anything that smacked of salvation through good works, a Catholic doctrine, and took Calvinist predestination to such extremes they believed themselves exempt from the Ten Commandments. Antinomians claimed guidance by the Holy Spirit, but Winthrop and his deputies were convinced Satan deceived them. They were not therefore surprised when the antinomian figurehead, Anne Hutchinson, miscarried. Quote, for as she had vented misshapen opinions, so she must bring forth deformed monsters. Pynchon, a freethinker, was perturbed. Quote, the contention in the bay grows hot and public, end quote, he warned. Quote, and what will be the issue, the Lord knows. End quote. The issue it became clear was greater prickliness towards, and more prosecutions for, dissent. A heterodoxy that Boston equated with heresy. Damn it, I forgot to do the big quote, big end quote again. All right, well, you'll just, you know, that was a big block of text. Big end quote. Pynchon set out in shallops with two other men, to scout the ideal territory for his new settlement, heading north of Roxbury by river. Oh, I've just figured out that I've been mispronouncing it. Alright, they picked a spot where the Agawam and Connecticut rivers met. Agawam, not Agawam or Agawam, or however I was saying it, Agawam, which would serve as an ideal location for Pynchon to expand his fur trading network with the Mohegan and Warrenoke, and enable him to ship his wares downriver to his warehouse in Enfield, where they would then get picked up by a sloop from Hartford and sail for Saybrook, at which point they would be loaded on a bigger ship for Boston. Pynchon was shipping furs to Boston, 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. He was a sailor peg, and he lost his leg. He was climbing up the topsails, and he lost his leg. Sorry, enough of that. Such a stupid song, but I loved it when I was like 13 years old. Anyways, does William Pynchon's trading network remind you of anything? Sounds eerily familiar to John Winthrop the Younger's riverine alchemical plantation scheme, doesn't it? Well, that would be by design, because... Guess who William Pynchon turned to for settlement advice? That's right, John Winthrop the Younger, who had already successfully settled Ipswich and Saybrook. And Winthrop Jr.'s involvement in Pynchon's venture didn't end there. As he apparently shipped various supplies like clothes and telescopes out there for him, so that's interesting. Earlier we had talked about how Pynchon had sent an indigenous scout to investigate Winthrop Jr.'s silver mine site. Well, evidently these two had a budding colonial and entrepreneurial partnership slash rivalry going. I assume that the Pequot War benefited Pynchon's scheme in some capacity. But even if it didn't directly, something else did. In 1633-34, 12,000 Native Americans died in the Connecticut River Valley from a smallpox epidemic. So yeah, that's just so fucking sad. And then here comes William fucking Pynchon, pressuring the remaining Agawam chieftains through an interpreter to sell him their land, granting him three parcels of land five miles long along the river for the paltry price of a coat, a hatchet, a hoe, a knife, and a fathom of wampum. Rutherna, the head chieftain, was given three coats. All in all, a pathetic undervaluation. Pynchon assured them that they would retain natural rights to the land, meaning they could hunt on it. But this clause wouldn't be upheld, at least not after Pynchon's death. We're actually about to talk about this guy for a separate incident a bit later, but evidently Pynchon also had a dispute with Captain John Mason of the Connecticut Colony, and his quote-unquote grace following the dispute led to him getting to rename the town to his liking. This is interesting, as we'll see that Captain John Mason 
was allied with the Uncas slash Mohegan, Connecticut, and Massachusetts Bay faction during the territorial and power struggle over Winthrop the Younger's relationship with the surviving Pequot of New London. So this further illustrates that Winthrop the Younger and William Pynchon were a part of the same religiously tolerant and more peaceful faction of English Puritan colonizers in New England. Further demonstrating this is the fact that Pynchon was one of the religious dissenters that Child helped to organize. He went so far as to author a religious treatise on grace that further inflamed the controversy by criticizing the Puritan insistence on predestination and even the Puritan clergy themselves. This became the very first banned and burnt book in colonial New England, if not the United States. Called The Meritorious Price of Our Redemption, the executioner of Boston piled a shipment of the texts on the Boston Common and conflagrated them on fire on October 16, 1650, as ordered by the General Court of Boston. Quoting from Wikipedia here. After Pynchon became disaffected with the Connecticut colony, he annexed Springfield to Massachusetts Bay, confirming that colony's western and southwestern boundaries. Pynchon built a warehouse in what was once Springfield, but is present-day East Windsor, Connecticut. Known as Warehouse Point, and to this day it still bears the name, in the years 1636 to 1652, Pynchon exported between 4,000 and 6,000 beaver pelts a year from that location, and also was the New World's first commercial meat packer exporting pork products. The profits from these endeavors enabled him to retire to England as a very wealthy man. End quote. Unless I'm seeing things, Pynchon made his move and performed his settlement switcheroo in 1639 or thereabouts, changing his colonial allegiance from Connecticut to Massachusetts. This further explicates the tight relationship between the Pynchon and Winthrop family networks. As Winthrop Sr., immediately made Pynchon the magistrate of Springfield. Pynchon considered himself a godly man, and while he acknowledged that a monopoly on corn and corn distribution would be damaging to the health and economic well-being of the colonies, he had no qualms with establishing his monopoly on furs in Massachusetts. As Gaskell writes, this would make him one of the wealthiest men in the colony by the time of his departure. 
Yeah, it appears that Pynchon was always a bit of a cutthroat trader. When Springfield was still a part of the Connecticut colony, Pynchon was embroiled in a controversy. In fact, this is the dispute with Captain John Mason that we previously mentioned. The colony had requested that Pynchon purchase corn from their indigenous neighbors at a set price to help feed other villages downriver from him, and sent Captain Mason to see it through. When Mason arrived, Pynchon claimed that the natives weren't willing to sell at the desired price. Captain Mason was enraged and became convinced that Pynchon was trying to pull one over on both parties, essentially, so that he could pocket the extra. This incident preceded Springfield's switch to Massachusetts Bay. It was during Pynchon's tenure as magistrate of Springfield that the witchcraft accusations against Hugh and Mary Parsons began to percolate. Hugh Parsons was a stoic and grumpy brickmaker, and his wife Mary was likely depressed, possibly postpartum. She may have even been schizophrenic. Regardless of any diagnostic speculations, there was ample reason for her quote-unquote mood swings. What with her hard-scrabble life and the trauma of having lost multiple children, Anyways, people were talking about her and her husband, and not just because Mary had taken to wandering the meadows at night in her shift. In the spring of 1649, a Springfield woman named Sarah Edwards Cow began to produce varicolored milk, at one point even saffron which is a light purple. Also, if you've looked into the Salem witchcraft crisis and colonial-era witch hunts in general, you likely have heard of the quote-unquote witch's teat, the belief that one of the primary physiological indicators of the witch is the presence of a weird fleshy protrusion on the body which is supposed to be a spot where the demonic familiar of the witch, which performs the witch's bidding, sucks for its sustenance. In the Puritan conception of a witch, once you become one, you literally have this little demon that just sucks the life force out of you. I mention this just because, like, talk about the mother of all witches' teats. A cursed udder that's producing discolored milk. Perhaps the Parsons weren't the witches at all. Perhaps Pynchon should have pinched that cow nipple one more time and checked for a witch's teat. Wait, no. He should have looked more closely at the mama cow's heifer. <laughs> heifer. Sorry, my dad. Joke. Jokes aside, Edward's husband actually did consult with Pynchon, and Pynchon concurred that, quote, 
such a change could not come from a natural cause, end quote. And of course, Hugh Parsons, the discontented brickmaker, had recently come to the Edwards requesting milk for the repayment of an earlier debt. So the Edwards were quick to conclude that Hugh had purple milk on his hands. Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky. It had a one long horn and one big eye. Like a Mr. Shaking in the city. It looks like a purple people eater to me. It was a one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. One eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. A one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. Sure looks strange to me. One eyed. Well, he came down to earth and he lit in the tree. I said, Mr. Purple People Eater, don't eat me. I heard him say in a voice so gruff. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. Sure looks strange to me. Around two years later, a Springfield resident named Jonathan Taylor arrived home at night and crept into his cottage to try and avoid waking his eight-month pregnant wife and their infant daughter. He slipped into the bed and between the canvas sheets. Suddenly, he spied movement on the floor. A trident of snakes slithered towards him along the hardwood floor. The littlest of the three black and yellow-striped, slid up and onto the bed. Taylor was freaking out at this point, and interjection, but my god, night terrors were seemingly non-stop for the English settlers like WTF, and I thought my sleep was bad. Anyways, Practically every colonial account of witchcraft and possession that I have read involves someone having a night terror or vision at some point. According to Gaskell, Taylor lashed out at the snake a couple of times, but it kept returning. Finally, it hissed the word, Tath, at Taylor, and in a voice he recognized, the next morning, when he awoke, he was convinced that Hugh Parsons, whose wife had just been arrested under suspicion of witchcraft, had sent the demonic snake to torment him. So those are two of the stories that circulated and supplied the colonial community of Springfield with the ammo to accuse Hugh and Mary Parsons of witchcraft. But let's read an excerpt from Lewis Putnam Turco's Satan's Scourge, a narrative of the Age of Witchcraft, real quick. Because perhaps there's a different point of origin for the paranormal occurrences in Springfield in the mid-1600s. Reminder that the next few paragraphs are Lewis Putnam Turco's words, not mine. 
as is his boomer insistence on referring to indigenous Americans as Indians. Big quote. Judge William Pynchon was a strange sort of man, even for his own times, which were filled with odd folk. His was a charismatic and overpowering personality. He tended to dominate attention whenever he was present with other people. In addition, he held some unorthodox religious beliefs, though he kept these to himself. In 1636, he gathered about him a group of settlers who were ready to follow him into the wilderness. Not being himself a minister, Pynchon brought with him the Reverend George Moxon, a strong-willed man himself and a Sawyer brickmaker named Hugh Parsons. Parsons was a dour man with peculiar habits and a vengeful streak that manifested itself not in actions, but in mutterings to the effect that he would quote, be even, end quote, with anyone who crossed him. The first settlement of Pynchon's group was on the west bank of the Connecticut River in western Massachusetts Bay, at the confluence of the Agawam River, where a tribe of Indians was close by. It soon became apparent to the Englishmen that the Indian god of evil, whom they called Habamok, and whom the Puritans called the Devil, was aroused against the settlement. The Indians of New England worshipped Habamok, not because he was a good spirit, but because he was evil and needed to be appeased so that he would do them no harm. His name had entered the colonists' vocabulary in a shortened form, for parents often told their children to, quote, stop raising Hob, end quote. But Hob was raised in Springfield. No sooner had the folk built shelters than they began to be plagued with a series of inexplicable incidents, the chief of which had to do with their cattle getting loose and straying into the Indians' cornfields, doing a great deal of damage. The natives were angry. Their drums, with accompanying menacing dances, could be heard summoning other tribes to a rendezvous. The medicine men, or powwows or powas, could be seen and heard singing before blazing fires. The Springfielders decided to move across the river. There they found barren stony ground. At great cost in health and labor, they attempted to settle in. Many spoke of returning to the Boston area and muttered that the devil had chosen their band for particular punishment. Nothing but Judge Pynchon's force of will prevented a mass exit from the new town. Big end quote. Interesting choice of words at the end there. Force of will. 
and the accompanying magical connotations. As Gaskell points out, although Hugh Parsons was an invaluable member of the Springfield community and the solitary provider of materials crucial for the construction of new cabins, he was a bit of a pariah. People didn't like his grumpy ways, and they especially found his affectless response to the loss of his child suspect. Here's an incident that illustrates the contagiousness of witchcraft accusations in colonial New England. According to Lewis Putnam Turco, descendant of the Salem-slash-Boston Brahmin Putnam family, William Pynchon and Reverend George Moxon traveled to Hartford, Connecticut on May 26th to view the hanging of the very first executed witch in North America, Alice Young of Windsor. Evidently, a lot of Springfield folk traveled to watch the hanging, which talk about the contradictions of Puritan society. Like, if you think that we're desensitized to violence today, imagine being so starved for entertainment that the public execution of an accused witch was the equivalent of like a music festival or some shit. When Pynchon and Moxon returned to Springfield, Moxon immediately demanded that his daughters identify whoever had been tormenting them spectrally. They announced that it was Hugh Parsons. In a departure from the later Salem witchcraft blueprint, though, William Pynchon was unimpressed by the spectral evidence and dismissed the charges. This infuriated his frequent collaborator, Reverend Moxon, to no end, as he was, in effect, calling his daughters liars. An apparent additional similarity between John Winthrop Jr. and Judge William Pynchon. As we've previously mentioned, John Winthrop the Younger would similarly diffuse a witchcraft crisis in Connecticut as colonial governor in tandem with the cold water thrown on the proceedings by his fellow alchemist Gershom Bulkley, the Reverend of New London. But wait, not so fast. Although William Pynchon often is presented as a paragon of methodical, rational thinking, and seemed reluctant to bring the Parsons couple to trial, this would change. Once he became embroiled in the doctrinal controversy related to his publication of The Meritorious Price of Our Redemption, and his participation in the mini-rebellion against the religious intolerance of Massachusetts Bay Colony, led by Robert Child, Pynchon changed his tune and ended up acting as prosecutor of the witchcraft accusations against Hugh and Mary. Placing Pynchon's turnaround 
in the larger context of English politics around that time, including the beheading of King Charles I in January of 1649, in the midst of the accusations against the Parsons. It's useful to think about the possible political motivations behind these witch hunts. As Gaskell and others have argued, the colonial elite seem to become much more willing to entertain the prospect of a quote-unquote witch insurrection in colonial society when their power and equilibrium has been challenged, as we later see with Governor Phipps and his witch-crusading attempts at shielding his wife from scrutiny during the Salem witchcraft crisis, and the trial's dual purpose of distracting from the Massachusetts Bay Colony's recent military failures in Canada, Pynchon's motivation for pursuing the accusations against Hugh and Mary is staring us right in the face. Ah, the hypocrisy. One moment he's pushing for increased religious tolerance and criticizing the clergy of Massachusetts Bay, but as soon as Pynchon realizes there's going to be blowback, he decides to move forward with the Parsons witchcraft accusations, shielding himself from the mercurial vagaries of public opinion in colonial New England by giving the people the witch trial they wanted. I'm literally just piecing this hypothesis together right now, and haven't had a chance to cross-reference the chronology, but it seems fairly promising, I gotta say. Returning to Gaskell. Quote, Typically the fruits of Hughes' labors disappeared into William Pynchon's account ledger, end quote. <laughs> From the sound of it, Pynchon was quite the proto-capitalist provincial overlord and was running a tight ship. Hugh was apparently indebted to him to the point that the brickmaking and assorted services he was providing Pynchon and the other residents, went towards his existing debt, and money rarely changed hands. And Pynchon, with his trade network, likely controlled the dry goods and resources that the residents of Springfield were dependent on. I wonder if this has anything to do with Parsons appearing as a frustrated figure. I'd be fucking frustrated. Speaking of Pynchon's trade network, they used birchwood canoes to sail peas, wheat, and furs downriver, at which point they would trade for knives, salt, raisins, leather, kettles, glass, and all manner of other goods. Holy shit, dude. Okay. This is a little off topic, but... I just gotta read this quote from Gaskell's The Ruin of All Witches, 
with an anecdote or two of frontier life. Trigger warning, animal cruelty. Big quote. The worries of household life bled into those of the neighborhood, community, and colony beyond, and vice versa. In the autumn of 1645, while Hugh and Mary Parsons were setting up home, townships in the Connecticut Valley were buzzing with unsettling rumors of an imminent Dutch assault supported by native allies. Amid heightened alertness to a common danger, the valley's English settlements were poised to unite against what they believed to be an approaching Indian enemy. But there was no love lost between them either. Pynchon continued to cause frustration and fury by refusing to pay a levy for the fort at Saybrook, believing it to be, quote, a very great charge and little or no benefit, end quote. And so, fears of the Indian threat persisted. Springfield's men, unable to fight an enemy they couldn't see, contented themselves by making war on the foxes and wolves that crept low among their herds and flocks. Iron hooks, baited with offal and grease, were strung between trees, which, when swallowed, became embedded in wolves' throats. The selectmen offered a bounty for every wolf caught, paid upon presentation of its severed ears. Dogs that killed sheep were dragged to the woods to be hanged, which seemed like condign punishment for animal felons. Big end quote. That's the sound of my kitty cat getting in my backpack. I think he's terrified because... What the fuck? They hung dogs? And fished for wolves? Thank God I wasn't alive then, because I would have made Hugh Parsons look like a functional member of Springfield by comparison. I, I would have spent the whole day just weeping in the forest over the fished wolves and hung dogs. Jesus. Secondly, Embedded in this quote, you might have noticed an example of William Pynchon's proto-capitalist stinginess, his refusal to pay the levies to the fort at Saybrook, which the English colonists believed their safety depended on. On the one hand, I'm like, yes, cool, because let's be real. The world probably would have been a better place if the indigenous Americans had chased the English into the sea and let them drown. But at the same time, I doubt that William Pynchon was refusing to pay the levy to the fort in protest of colonial violence. I'm getting more of a feeling that he was like gambling with civic funds, not literally, but in the sense that he 
withheld the levy because he didn't see any way in which paying it would profit him or his trading venture directly. But I could be wrong. In the mid-1640s, around the time that Pynchon may have begun to compose his text on Christ's atonement, witch hunts and rebellion were ravaging England's countryside. My cat is really insisting on messing up my recording here. Here's some more from Gaskell on the lead-up to the eventual imprisonment of Mary Parsons for witchcraft and Hugh's acquittal. Big quote. There were also reports from England of the witch hunt in the eastern counties, which by now had spread from Essex, Suffolk, and Norfolk into Huntingdonshire, So far, over 200 suspects had been arrested, male as well as female, many of whom had made extraordinary confessions, sealing diabolic covenants, suckling familiar spirits and bewitching neighbors. These fantastical claims had hardened into convincing reality in the courtroom especially because they came from the witches' own mouths. One woman admitted that a creature, like a large brown mouse, had woken her from a dream by nipping her and had demanded a portion of her soul. At first she resisted, but soon accepted two imps as her personal gods one for killing cattle, and the other men. Big end quote. Ah, the prodigious wonders of life during witch time. In old England, people were witnessing ominous rainbows and second suns, bloody downpours, thunder like gunfire, and monstrous births. Similarly, quote-unquote disquieting phenomena, were appearing throughout the New England frontier. A rainbow with UAP-esque lights in Boston. In Ipswich, the town Winthrop the Younger had founded, Winthrop Sr. recorded that people gathered to observe a calf that had been born with three heads, with one sunken to another. Cotton Mather would later document similar cases in his book Memorable Providences. That spring, the English and indigenous in New England were hit with agues, maybe marsh fever, which caused fits, quote, great prostration of the spirits, end quote. I'm assuming vomiting? and, quote, strange stupefaction of the brain, end quote. Sounds fun. Evidently, the illness hit children the hardest. So when the love child of a young couple born out of wedlock died, the Springfielders chalked it up to God's wrath at their misdeeds. 
couple this with the ceaseless paranoia caused by the continual conflict between indigenous and the colonists, and you start to get a sense of the kind of psychic brew that Pynchon's atonement notions and the Parsons' accusations were fermenting in. In the summer of 1646, two sons appeared over Boston, causing the Puritan grandees of the Massachusetts Bay to announce that the apocalypse was nigh. Meanwhile, in Springfield, Connecticut warriors came to William Pynchon's house and threatened him, which honestly sounds like just desserts. All the while, poor Hugh Parsons floundered in his unglorified wage slavery to Pynchon, toiling from sunup to sundown. He finally completed the chimney for Pynchon's mill, which Gaskell states halved his debt. But a young laborer, with a family in the New England frontier, racks up the debt quicker than he can knock it down. So, didn't matter much. And boy, did Pynchon keep Hugh hustling. In 1647, he contracted out 5,000 bricks from Parsons, which he needed in three months' time. The bricks were valuable to Pynchon, as they served as another form of currency, lubricating the wheels of his trade machine. Oh, and get this. I guess because Pynchon fronted the money for the land in Springfield, he recouped it by taxing the 42 households, which served to keep the poorer and generally younger families in interminable indebtedness to their provincial landlord. That summer, more epidemics ran roughshod through the frontier hamlets. This time, the smallpox and influenza took one of Pynchon's old adversaries, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, who we mentioned had exercised a possessed woman back in England. Damn, man. Pynchon literally had Hugh Parsons doing everything for him. That August, Hugh canoed Pynchon's pelts to the warehouse and returned with the traded goods. The fact that William Pynchon had Hugh Parsons, and by extension his wife Mary, basically enslaved to him, makes the fact that he later prosecuted them for witchcraft that much more effed up. One aspect of Malcolm Gaskell's book that I'm trying to come to terms with is the stress that he places on the patriarchal social structure of colonial society and the competition it created between men and families as the source of the discontents that led to the Parsons' accusations. Like he's trying to draw some analogy between the failures of King Charles I to 
Hugh Parsons' dysfunctionality as a frontier patriarch and inability to control his own household. And he like literally calls the colonial household a quote-unquote mini-commonwealth. I don't know. I just feel like he's trying to be too smart and highfalutin for his own good. Although colonial New English society was certainly patriarchal, I find his social explanations of the witch-accusation craze less compelling than others. Mary Beth Norton being one example, who astutely parses not only the gender relations and power dynamics that pricked at the social fabric, but also the underlying psychological traumas caused by the intermittent frontier warfare. Don't get me wrong. From what I've read, his book is well-written and chock-full of great information, and he certainly furnished me with a ton of shit that I needed to square the circle of Pynchon's connection to Winthrop the Younger's alchemical and Rosicrucian network. I'm losing my voice. Network. Speaking of Winthrop the Younger, let's talk a little about alchemedicine, folks. And as any settler worth their salt had to be, of course, Pynchon was a frontier doctor, too. Quote, a big one. William Pynchon, who knew something about most things, advised that the, quote, hot, subtle vapor which hath taken possession of her brain, end quote, might be removed with medicine and prayer. In cases like that of Mary Parsons, Pynchon discouraged snorting powders and instead recommended possets with sugars and saffron. Lettuce leaves, if they could be had, were also salutary. Making the body sweat released vapors and was, quote, a good help to the operation of other physic, end quote. By physic, Pynchon meant pills, herbal tablets for sale at his store, and of a type common in the old world, intended to flush away toxins, refreshing Mary's brain and rebalancing her bodily humors. Pynchon's son-in-law, William Davis, a druggist in Boston, was almost certainly his supplier. Taking Pynchon's advice, Hugh Parsons started buying these pills for Mary in the winter of 1645, and carried on doing so through 1646. First four, then twelve, then another four. In February 1647, he bought yet another four, and a week later two more. No one in Springfield, apart from George Moxon, for his own unknown malady, purchased so many pills. They also tried purging Mary, 
a process usually performed using laxatives or quote-unquote vomits. Hugh bought Mary a vomit. <laughs> That's quite the phrase. But predictably was against her taking to her bed. An opinion illustrated by the work shoes he bought her at the same time. For the household to thrive, he felt. She needed to stay on her feet and keep going. Big end quote. You just can't make this shit up, folks. This guy, proto-capitalist William Pynchon, was creating a problem so he could profit off of it. By keeping Mary's husband working constantly, he was depriving her of the community and closeness she desired, which in turn caused her unwell mental state to spiral, which in turn caused Hugh to start purchasing pills from Pynchon, which Pynchon prescribed and kept crediting to Parsons' account. Knowing that he'd be able to keep Hugh working for him indefinitely. Into 1648, things continued to deteriorate in the Parsons household and in Hugh and Mary's minds. Gaskell argues that Hugh Parsons was constantly measuring himself and his family and domestic quote unquote commonwealth up against his fellows in the Springfield community, and that his perceived shortcomings were irking him to no end. Desperate for more income, Hugh asked Mary to return to working for the daughter of William Pynchon as like a maid or whatever. But she, understandably exhausted from multiple pregnancies, raising young children, and tending to a household in the wilderness, was too exhausted to do so. Hugh sought out even more work in defiance of what he saw as an insurrection of his patriarchal authority. He also decided to start taking on borders at this point, further complicating the emotional climate in their cabin no doubt. According to Gaskell, Hugh's tendency to avoid his household contributed to the community's wariness of him and suspicion that he was a witch. To me, it sounds like exceedingly normal marital strife and workaholic absentee father behavior. But for the Puritans of Springfield, it spelled trouble. Evidently, it was these boarders named the Dorchesters who Pynchon dictated would reside with the Parsons that began to add even more fuel to the witchcraft accusations. Real chill way of repaying all that hospitality. Around that time, another witch named Margaret Jones... IIRC, I think the first ever in Massachusetts Bay, was hung on Boston Common. In the late 1640s, the discovery of witches rippled along the Connecticut River Valley. In the winter of 1648, 
Mary Johnson of Wethersfield was interrogated by the Puritan minister Samuel Stone, and her witchery was found out. She confessed to having murdered a child, used Satan's assistance with her chores, and having, quote, committed uncleanness both with men and with devils, end quote. She was sentenced to death but the execution was postponed until after she gave birth. In early 1649, Hugh Parsons was at the Bedortha's house, fulfilling a contract for bricks. He became irritated when Goody Blanche Bedortha lost her patience with him and said something to her that sounded like a curse, further strengthening the community's gossipy belief that the Parsons were in league with the devils. Meanwhile, Mary Parsons, depressed and obsessed with the circulating witchcraft accusations, was participating in the town gossip herself, dropping hints that another woman named Marshfield was a witch. Oh, this is interesting. I didn't even think about this, but in the same year that King Charles I was beheaded in Old England, John Winthrop Sr. died in New. And as Gaskell points out, this turn of events likely encouraged Pynchon to publish his criticism of Puritan doctrine and society, sensing an opportunity in the power vacuum caused by basically the most powerful Puritan elder's demise. These political realities seem instructive when thinking about Pynchon's decision to stick his neck out for increased religious tolerance and his biblical exegesis of Christ's redemption of mankind. Again, Gaskell tries to draw these larger political realities into his claim that the patriarchal power dynamics of English society were quote-unquote teetering. But I don't buy this, really. I feel like there had been a momentary shift in the ruling class during the English Civil Wars. A blip, really. But the patriarchal social structure was still intact. In 1649, Hugh Parsons began to squirm and cry out in the darkness of his and Mary's bedroom, complaining of stabbing pain in his stomach. Mary was convinced that the devil that Goody Marshfield had brought to Springfield had entered their home. Soon, Hugh began to sleep alone at night, sick of the crowded cabin his family shared with the Dorchesters and his wife's obsession with witchcraft accusations. It was around this time that Sarah Edwards Heifer began producing the saffron milk, which she initially credited to pulling too hard on the udder, which had caused bleeding, 
But when the milk continued to change colors, witchcraft was the only explanation. A few days later, a town meeting was called to decide whether Goody Parsons had slandered Widow Marshfield with her claims of witchery. In the lead-up to the trial, Mary pulled one of her neighbors aside and whispered a devastating revelation, claiming that her own husband was a witch. In the slander hearing, Pynchon was the sole judge and juror. For non-capital offenses, he enjoyed the freedom to preside over any disputes as the town's magistrate. Gaskell seems to be of the opinion that Pynchon was fairly fair. He ended up ruling against Mary Parsons and sentenced her to either 20 lashes or to have the sentence commuted by paying reparations to Widow Marshfield. Hugh, of course, was not happy about this. Already crazy in debt to pension, he now had to either endure the public humiliation of his wife being whipped in the town center, or else come up with the money. He was further incensed because he'd been fined in the same session for smoking a pipe in the street. Pynchon really was such a fucking hall monitor, dude. Okay, so I guess Pynchon was a member of the General Court of Boston, as Gaskell writes how he was excused from attendance in the summer of 49 to focus on matters in Springfield. Pynchon was inspired by a new book written by the chaplain of the New Model Army, Richard Baxter, that provided him with more ammo for his refutation of the wrathfulness of God. Gaskell claims that this was a big part of Pynchon's aim. His biblical exegesis was about proving God's loving nature. At one point, the Reverend George Moxon was away on business, and so Pynchon filled in for him in the pulpit in the meeting house, and evidently this was one of the early instances where Pynchon began to verbalize his heterodox ideas, which shocked the townsfolk and further contributed to the sense of unease in the community. This is an important point, as we've already drawn parallels between the proto-capitalist pension and the alchemical Rosicrucian cognoscenti of colonial society. Remember those D. Michael Quinn and Peter Lavenda quotes from earlier episodes talking about how the common people of the colonies suspected witchcraft and heresy among their churchmen and governors. The commonly held belief of a quote-unquote confederacy of witches allied with the colonists' Native American enemies was fed by incidents such as these. Meanwhile, 
Pynchon preached that the disagreements and hatred between the men in Springfield was caused by Satan. So even the more religiously tolerant Puritan theologians like Pynchon saw the devil everywhere, spoon-feeding the pervasive paranoia of colonial society into Puritan mouths. Around the time of this sermon, another Springfield resident named William Branch had experienced two memorable providences, one an apparition of a boy who was literally on fire, and the other a sudden stiffness where his legs felt like they were wrapped in invisible splints. Branch believed that Hugh Parsons was the cause. From what I can tell, Mary and Hugh became more and more convinced that the other was a witch, their marital life descending into new levels of schizo-strife. They started surreptitiously checking each other for quote-unquote witches' teats under their bedclothes looking for evidence of their suspicions of the other. Further exacerbating the paranoia in the Parsons household, and in Springfield, little Samuel Parson, three years old, had fallen ill. One night in September, Hugh and Mary were called to his cradle by his whimpering and crying. They pulled off his covers and watched as convulsions racked his body from toe to crown. Hugh left in a panic, rousing various neighbors and begging for help, including Sarah Cooley and Blanche Bedortha. Quote from Gaskell. Big quote. Also disturbed by the commotion, Two other women were not far behind. Together they laid hands on Samuel, and soon he was breathing again. Their experience of raising children had saved his life, but this didn't mean they thought his condition was natural. Sarah Cooley had heard that victims of witchcraft often felt a lump rising in their chests before they choked to death. They examined the baby's body thoroughly, and, like George Colton, noticed that his secrets were diseased. What they all knew but didn't say was that for a witch to attack a person's genitals was in effect an attack on the regeneration and so the future of the plantation. Only a weak, malicious person would even contemplate such a thing. Big end quote. Tragically, the improvement of Samuel's condition was just a momentary reprieve. A few days later, and with Hugh away, working tirelessly and angrily, no doubt, Samuel perished. And so the moment of consequence came about, the final nail in the coffin of the 
witchcraft accusations against the Parsons that would lead to their trial and Mary's death while imprisoned following her surprise confession. When Hugh learned that his little son had died, he declined to return home straight away, instead cutting a bowl of tobacco at a neighbor's and languidly smoking. The community was amazed at his indifference, and when he did arrive back at the homestead, where his wife sat on the ground with the corpse of their child, he was taciturn and later wandered off to work in the hayfields. The community of Springfield was now utterly convinced that the Parsons were in league with the devil. As they couldn't comprehend Hugh's lack of emotion. Remember how I was saying that Pynchon's prosecution of the Parsons was likely motivated by a crafty self protectiveness? Well, I'm finding more evidence to back this claim up. Check out this quote from Michael Winship's essay. Contesting Control of Orthodoxy Among the Godly, William Pynchon Reexamined. Big quote. Around the end of 1652, William Pynchon slipped out of Massachusetts, his home since 1630, and returned to England. Pynchon, charter member of the Massachusetts Bay Company, commercial entrepreneur and founder of Springfield, was also a convicted heretic and now a fugitive from justice. His theological crimes are arcane enough to 20th century scholars that they have never been fully explicated or properly placed in context. Yet his offending book hit such a raw nerve among his fellow members of the Massachusetts General Court that they only had to see its title page to realize that it was, quote, derogatory both to the justice of God and the grace of Christ, end quote. That Pynchon has largely eluded modern scholars, although thoroughly alarming his contemporaries, suggests that he has something yet to tell us about the volatile 17th century theological landscape, where elaborations in divinity collided with exercises of state power. End of big quote. As Winship shows, Pynchon, although causing a stir with his biblical exegesis of Christ's atonement, actually considered himself an Orthodox Puritan. According to Winship, Pynchon didn't identify as an Armenian, nor did he think of himself as a heretical antinomian. Winship correctly assesses his theological impact as minor, though I think you could argue that he played a role in the gradual softening of colonial American Calvinism in the lead-up to the Revolutionary War and beyond. Even so, Pynchon's theologizing says a lot about the religious climate in the 17th century colonies 
and the tendency of wealthy and powerful laypersons to wade into doctrinal discussions. This is instructive. Remember that the Puritan colonies were utopian theopolitical projects, and that theology, politics, and power were inextricably intertwined in Massachusetts and Connecticut. According to Winship, Pynchon literally fled New England as a, quote, fugitive from justice, end quote. That sounds pretty serious. Tally, another piece of evidence supporting our argument that Pynchon exploited the witchcraft accusations in Springfield as a convenient distraction from his own legal troubles and heresy. As Winship exhibits, Orthodox uniformity was incredibly important to the Puritan ruling class, as shown by the response to the antinomian controversy and the reaction to Pynchon and Robert Child's mini-insurrection, which, if we haven't stated yet, resulted in the both of them leaving New England for good. Here's another example of this that Winship gives. Quote, As the prominent Massachusetts magistrate John Endicott put it, quote, God's people are marked with one and the same mark. Where this is, there can be no discord. End quote. Winship seems to be indicating that the Puritans were desperate to keep up appearances of a tranquil doctrinal uniformity as they saw theological departures from orthodoxy as not only rebellion but also damning evidence that maybe they weren't as holy as they thought. This is ironic, as you can probably tell from listening to these episodes. The ideological and spiritual climate of Puritan colonial society was both more diverse, see all of the elite occultists we've covered, plus commoner practitioners of folk magic, and more volatile than generally assumed. In summer and autumn of 1650, the Parsons' fortunes were continuing to decline. Gaskell argues that pensions were beginning to fall, too. But the next second talks about how his fur trade monopoly was at the height of its powers in that moment. Quote, Pynchon was at the apex of his power and profit in the fur trade, a thorn driven ever deeper into the side of Dutch traders. Some consignments he sent downriver contained as many as 200 pelts, weighing 300 pounds, a staggering amount by usual standards. End quote. But his book had also just hit the printers, and soon they were on sale in Cornhill, near the Royal Exchange in London. It's likely the pilgrim agent, Edward Winslow, who was back in Old England working on behalf of the Plymouth Colony, 
was the first to discover Pynchon's heretical text. IIRC Winslow was also involved in the Morton Saga, and encountered John Winthrop the Younger in some capacity too. If he did in fact find a copy, he would have been shocked by Pynchon's arguments that Christ didn't suffer the atonement because of God's wrath, but that it was instead an act of perfect, quote, mediatorial obedience, end quote, to the Father. Big quote. Pynchon devoted 158 pages to this idea that the atonement came from Christ acquiescing to God rather than enraging him by absorbing the sins of the world. He was intent on separating literal truths such as God's perfection from mere allegories and rejected a Catholic construction of hell that included purgatory. He also thought Catholics and Lutheran Protestants alike were wrong about the Eucharist. Quote, For they place the meritorious price of their redemption in the gross substance of Christ's flesh and blood. End quote. Whereas the quote-unquote miracle was entirely symbolic and in no way spiritual or mystical. The meritorious price of our redemption was bracingly rational, modern, and intensely heretical. Big end quote. Here's more from Gaskell on what happened once Pynchon's books arrived in the Americas. Big quote. In Boston, another Springfielder, William Pynchon, was causing a different kind of stir. Copies of his book arrived there early in October, just as magistrates were assembling for the general court. The meritorious price of our redemption was discussed as a matter of urgency, the fear not only of its influence in New England, but that the Puritan government in London might think that Massachusetts Bay endorsed it. It was especially galling that Pynchon had styled himself, quote, gentleman in New England, end quote, on the title page. The magistrates were aghast at what they saw as a manifesto of treachery, adding to the heap of many errors and heresies already abounding in Old England. A letter to the English Parliament, professing, quote, their orthodox faith against all destructive paradoxes and dangerous innovations, end quote, was duly rushed to the harbor, where a transatlantic ship was waiting to depart. Condemning the meritorious price became an article of faith in New England. Even Pynchon's old friend, John Eliot, judged it to be, quote, a book full of error and weakness, and some heresies, end quote. Such language echoed the censure of antinomians in Boston in the mid-1630s, 
and expressed worry that any public departure from Calvinist orthodoxy might cause Old England to impose a governor upon them, as had been proposed in a petition of 1646 that everyone knew Pynchon had defended. Big end quote. Another essay regarding Pynchon's theological writings that I found on JSTOR describes the wily old traitor as latitudinarian and possibly aligned with Socinian schools of thought. Socinianism was a reformed theological movement created by two Italian humanists named Sozini, an uncle and nephew, actually, and one of their primary beliefs appears to be anti-Trinitarianism. Basically, they argued against the Trinity, or tripartite conception of God, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I haven't had a chance to really do any reading on these guys yet, but I would assume they argued against the Trinity as, like, covert paganism or something. Anyways, I just wanted to mention them as a possible influence. We might take another look at William Pynchon's theological thought another time, but we gotta wrap this up, so put a pin in it for now. Things that we know with certainty, though. The response from the general court was intense. The public burning of the books on the common, as we mentioned, also, they commissioned a refutation from the pastor John Norton of Ipswich, which John Winthrop Jr. founded. Another thing that's certain is that Pynchon did have some backers in Old and New England. One was the former colonial governor, Henry Vane Jr. Another was Roger Williams. Also, I'm not totally certain that my speculation about William Pynchon manipulating the witchcraft trials of Hugh and Mary Parsons to protect himself sticks. The chronology of their trials, the publication of the meritorious price, and the blowback may not match up as neatly as I'd like. But I might be totally right and I'm just foolishly second-guessing myself here. Some more digging may be required to bring that argument to bear. Oh, shit. Another quick note. In 1650, William Pynchon gave two Scottish prisoners of war to his son-in-law Henry Smith to work as farmhands. So yeah, Pynchon had a part in the growing institution of slavery in the colonies beyond just being colonial treasurer. These Scottish prisoners reported mass witch hunts back home in the lowlands. As we quickly glossed, things did not end well for the Parsons. In 1650, the rumors about them finally came to a head, when the Moxon girls became bewitched, and Mary was again interrogated. 
These interrogations would lead to her throwing her husband under the bus, only to later inexplicably confess to having killed her own child and being a witch herself. Ultimately, Mary would perish in the Boston prison while awaiting trial. If I have any more insights or learn anything new about William Pynchon and the Parsons between now and the next episode, we'll revisit this unique witch hunt account next time. But I think we've chewed on more than enough of it for a single episode.
should briefly discuss the reclusive Thomas Ruggles Pynchon Jr. and the family legacy he inherited. By way of Matthew Winston's The Quest for Pynchon, a brief essay from 1975, written following the publication of Gravity's Rainbow, which sifts through the biographical details in a half-hearted attempt to expose the man behind the novels. And the essay opens with an appropriately sus anecdote, as the author describes a conversation he had in a New York City apartment with an acquaintance, where he remarked at Pynchon's careful avoidance of the spotlight, and the owner of the apartment responded that Pynchon doesn't allow photographs to be used of him, to which Winston asked, Oh, how do you know that? And the man replied, Because I'm in the FBI. The author Winston goes on to describe how T.P. enlisted his high school principal in guarding his transcripts and preventing information from getting out about his high school days. Also, the fire that consumed the Navy Records office in St. Louis that likely contained documents from Pynchon's years in the service. And a story of the time that Winston met one of Pynchon's former roommates, who quote-unquote froze when asked about him, and was unwilling to reveal anything beyond the fact that they had lived together. In the next paragraph, Winston reveals that one of Pynchon's ancestors was a correspondent with our old buddy Nathaniel Hawthorne, and that this ancestor, Peter Oliver, wrote to Hawthorne about the freedom men of letters should enjoy to invade the public lives of individuals, which Winston uses to excuse his own snooping. According to Winston, 
The pensions arrived in Old England in the 12th century as Norman invaders with William the Conqueror. Another one of Pynchon's ancestors was High Sheriff of London in the 15th century, prior to the William Pynchon clan emigrating to New England. That's already quite the storied military background. Oh shit, I hadn't heard this yet. Evidently, William Pynchon was on such good terms with the Mohawks that they used to call all New Englanders Pynchon's men. Which reminds me of Winthrop's relationship with the Pequot of Namiug and his efforts to present himself as a power and his displays of familial power. Quote, big quote, big quote. Thomas Pynchon derived his interest in unorthodox Calvinist theology from his first American ancestor and drew on miscellaneous details of his own family history for the background of the Slothrops in Gravity's Rainbow. William Slothrop, the first American ancestor of Tyrone Slothrop, is a transformed version of William Pynchon. Both men sailed to America with Governor Winthrop, Slothrop on the flagship Arbella, Pynchon on the Ambrose or the Jewel. William Slothrop wrote a religious tract entitled On Preterition. Quote, it had to be published in England and is among the first books to have been not only banned, but also ceremonially, ceremonially burned in Boston, end quote. Slothrop and Pynchon each returned to England, and safely not long after his book was published. Like William Slothrop, William Pynchon had a son John, John Pynchon, trader, merchant, and land speculator, holder of numerous public offices, owner of mines, ships, and mills, remained in America and became one of the richest men in New England. At his funeral, a sermon was preached on, quote, God's frown in the death of useful men, end quote. His family produced a considerable number of merchants, doctors, clergymen, and academics. One of his 18th century descendants, Joseph Pynchon, seemed likely to become governor of Connecticut until he backed the losing side in the American Revolution. Very interesting. Nevertheless, Joseph is important to our story through his marriage to Sarah Ruggles, a descendant of Thomas Ruggles, who was one of the original settlers of Roxbury. Their son, Thomas Ruggles Pynchon, was the first to bear the name that has remained in the Pynchon family since 1760. He served as a physician in Guilford, Connecticut, 
until he was killed by falling from a horse in 1796. The Pynchons entered literary history, somewhat obliquely, when Nathaniel Hawthorne published The House of the Seven Gables in 1851. The novel sets forth the unsavory history of a family named Pynchon, or Pynchon, Indeed, Hawthorne had contemplated calling the book The Old Pynchion Family. Hawthorne knew of no extant pensions, and so was surprised to receive two letters of protest from members of the family. The first to write, Peter Oliver of Boston, feared that the novel might sully the reputation of the great-great-grandson of the founder of Springfield, William Pynchon. This is another William Pynchon, 1723-1789, who was popularly known as Judge Pynchon and who had resided for a time in Salem. The second correspondent was Reverend Thomas Ruggles Pynchon, who was the grandson of the Guilford physician and was at that time rector of St. Paul's Church, Stockbridge, and Trinity Church in Lenox. He faulted Hawthorne for, quote, holding up the good name of our ancestors to the derision and contempt of our countrymen, end quote. He explained that he was particularly upset because, quote, our family circle is an exceedingly small one. Probably there are not more than 20 persons in the whole country bearing the name, all of whom are closely connected by blood, and all known to each other. We know of no pensions, not of our own little band, end quote. And a big end quote. Shit, bruv. I didn't realize that the House of the Seven Gables is about the Pynchon clan. So that's the context of the Peter Oliver letter then, obviously. Wow, what is it with all these colonial-era titans of trade and their descendants devolving into writers and diplomats? Like, we gave... Numerous examples in episode one, James Russell Lowell being a good one, another New England writer who also served as a diplomat was Washington Irving. I know there are numerous others, but those are the two that are coming to my mind immediately. And then, of course, the same Lowell clan would continue to produce authors and poets following James Russell Lowell's generation. We already talked about Robert Lowell, and we also have to mention Amy Lowell, another famous Lowell poet who preceded Robert by a generation, I think. Gotta say, I think that Jimmy Fallon Gong's novels as spycraft theory and the accompanying series is super solid and an illuminating means of examining the work of various authors, especially those with military-industrial complex employment 
intelligence agency connections or elite dynastic families. Big quote. Reverend Thomas Ruggles Pynchon, 1823-1904, was a worthy spiritual ancestor of the novelist who bears his name, for he was master of many different fields. He received the degrees of D.D. and L.L.D., and taught chemistry, geology, zoology, and theology at Trinity College, Hartford, where he served as the ninth president. His numerous publications range from The Chemical Forces, Heat, Light, Electricity, An Introduction to Chemical Physics, 1870, to Bishop Butler, Religious Philosopher for All Time, 1889. To my disappointment, the index to The Chemical Forces mentions neither entropy nor James Clerk Maxwell, the inventor of Maxwell's demon. Still, the novelist might appreciate the coincidence that the copy of the book I consulted bears the signature of Andrew Dixon White, the first president of the university he was later to attend. Big end quote. So T.P. is also descended from this Trinity College president, another New England elite chemist. Wouldn't it be wild if he had had some familiarity with the alchemical presidents of Yale and Harvard that were doing their thing a mere century or so before him, like Ezra Stiles, etc.? I have no evidence to back that up, just dreaming. Winston also lists two other noteworthy Pynchon relatives. One Dr. Edwin Pynchon, who developed surgical instruments for operating on the nose, mouth, and throat, scary, and another who was a stockbroker who owned Pynchon and Company, which invested in aviation companies from the sound of it. Also, for you non-Bostonian listeners out there, Ruggles Station in Roxbury is, of course, named after a Thomas Pynchon and William Pynchon relative. Remember how we said William Pynchon founded Roxbury? Well, after growing up in Oyster Bay, T.P. attended Cornell University, sus, enrolling as an engineering physics student he would befriend another New Yorker from Flatbush, matriculating in the engineering program at Cornell, one Richard Farina, a folk singer who would be active in the Greenwich Village scene for a time, would later befriend Bob Dylan, divorce his wife so that he could marry Joan Baez's 17-year-old sister, and even publish his own postmodern picaresque called Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up To Me, which came out in 1966. Two days later, Richard Farina 
would die in a freak motorcycle accident. After getting a ride from someone following his reading of his new book in the Carmel Valley Village bookstore in California, the driver would survive. Very curious. Pynchon dedicated Gravity's Rainbow to Farina. So yeah, a lot of curious synchronicities between Pynchon and Farina. A year or two into his matriculation at Cornell, Pynchon left, enlisting in the Navy. He attended boot camp at the U.S. Naval Training Center in Bainbridge, Maryland. He appears to have joined Signal Corps, and also was trained as an electrician. Pynchon was on board the USS Hank destroyer ship in the Mediterranean during the Suez Crisis. According to his friends in the Navy, Pynchon claimed that he didn't intend to complete his education at the time. But then, after only like a year or two in the service, he suddenly returns to Cornell and switches his major to English. And I don't know if it was just that they were such good pals or what, but Richard Farina appears to have done the same thing, likely around the same time. Later in life, we also know that TP would work for Boeing. Setting aside the Salinger-esque black hole that is Thomas Pynchon's personal life, and any speculations about connections to intelligence, let's focus for a minute on Roman Acle aspects of his early work. Winston motions at the correlations between the Pynchon and Slothrop family lines. You've also got the pun about DeMille and his fur henchmen. But more than any of his famous career-defining novels, I want to look at one of Pynchon's sophomoric stories, written sometime during his Cornell writerly apprentice days, maybe around the time he was in one of Nabokov's lectures, or maybe after he graduated. The story is called Under the Rose, and Pynchon would later modify it and include it as the third chapter in his debut novel, V, which would elicit considerable praise for a debut novelist, including from such luminaries as George Plimpton, one of the founders of the Paris Review, Irk. Pynchon also received an award for Best Debut Novel in 1964, from the William Faulkner Foundation. Okay, so we're going to focus on Rosicrucian symbolism in Under the Rose, which, as you'll recall, Under the Rose slash Sub Rosa is a Rosicrucian-inflected oath of secrecy that stretches back to at least Roman times as referenced in Stephen Sora's Rosicrucian America, the saying may have originated in paintings of roses on the ceilings of banquet halls, and thus anything said under the rose and under the influence of vino 
was subject to secrecy. In the Middle Ages, if a rose was hung over a council meeting or gathering, the same meaning was imputed. And finally, nearing the Enlightenment, Francis Bacon's Rosy Cross Literary Society ensured its participants that their conversations would stay in the room. Another breadcrumb of Francis Bacon's influence on Rosicrucianism. The main character in Under the Rose is a spy named Porpentine, an archaic word for porcupine, and also the name of an inn in Shakespeare's play, The Comedy of Errors. And guess what? Speaking of inns, possibly the first performance of The Comedy of Errors took place at Gray's Inn during the Inns of Court's yearly revels on December 28, 1594, kinda creepily coinciding with Innocence Day, the day that commemorates King Herod's pogrom of children in his attempt to destroy the baby Jesus. You'll remember that Gray's Inn is the inn of court that Francis Bacon was a member of. He was also present on the night of the performance. Quoting from Wikipedia here. The 1594-95 revels were themed around friendship. As part of this, the inns exchanged members for the entertainments in formal ambassadorial-style exchanges. As such, the audience for the 28th of December performance was particularly distinguished. It included Henry Riotsley, 3rd Earl of Southampton, the lawyer and playwright Thomas Hughes, the writer John Lyley or Lilly, the philosopher and scientist Francis Bacon, who had contributed speeches to the 27th of December entertainment, and Francis Davison, who wrote a mask for the revels that year. This was the most prestigious audience that Shakespeare's work had been performed for up to this time. It is thought that the Lord Chamberlain's men performed the play on this occasion. However, the night of 28th of December did not proceed to plan. The hall was overcrowded, and fights broke out over the best seats. The ambassador from the inner temple left, perhaps in a staged fit of pique, and events to be held in his honor that night were cancelled. The amended program included dances preceding the performance of the play. It was a difficult night for the acting company. Their appearance was delayed for hours, and the audience were disruptive. The event concluded early the next morning and was subsequently referred to as 
the, quote, night of errors, end quote. On the following night of the revels, a mock trial was held of a sorcerer accused of causing the failure of the event, end quote. All right, so Under the Rose opens its petals in 1898, and Porpentine is sitting at a table in a cafe in Libya, the place Muhammad Ali, smoking a Turkish cigar. Porpentine is a British spy, and he's gazing at the various Europeans milling in the square, wondering how many of them are in the employ of Moldwarp, the veteran spy. It might be Moldywarp or Moldthorpe, because the character is German, but I'm not sure. Porpentine himself is called Il Semplice Inglese, or the simple-slash-easy-slash-naive Englishman. He's describing his practiced innocence, and then, quote, They would pirate, if they could, his child's gaze, his plump angel's smile. For nearly fifteen years he'd fled their sympathy, since the lobby of the Hotel Bristol, Naples, on a winter evening in 83, when everyone you knew in spying's Freemasonry seemed to be waiting. For Khartoum to fall, for the crisis in Afghanistan to keep growing until it could be given the name of sure apocalypse. There he had come, as he'd known he must at some stage of the game, to face the already aged face of Moldwarp himself, the prize man or maestro, feel the old man's hand solicitous on his arm and hear the earnest whisper, things are reaching a head. We may be for it, all of us. Do be careful. End quote. Spying's Freemasonry. Hmm. Porpentine wonders whether he could have been followed by spies from Trieste. Porpentine's partner is a man named Goodfellow, who is presented as kind of a rakish romantic figure who is incessantly dating and quote-unquote unperturbed by the fact that half his salary is sent to his wife in Liverpool every month. Also, Goodfellow has to be a pun, right? So, Porpentine and Goodfellow are sitting there, profiling Goodfellow's newest paramour, a young woman named Victoria Wren, a socialite daughter of one Quote, Sir Alistair Wren, F-R-C-O, end quote. Goodfellow appears to be competing for Victoria's affection with a crazed archaeologist named Bongo Shaftesbury, and he's planning on accompanying Victoria to a party at the Austrian consulate that night. Okay, so first of all, are you detecting 
any secret society or spy-related puns in the names I just mentioned. Here's one possibility. The surname Wren could be a reference to the Freemasonic architect Christopher Wren, couldn't it? I mean, Pynchon used the word Freemasonry only a sentence or two ago. Also, Victoria sounds like an allusion to Queen Victoria, right? I'm trying to not get too tinfoily here and start spouting off that Pynchon was a proponent of Alan Moore's Freemasonic Ripper theory before Moore had even conceived it, because that seems like a stretch. But at the same time, note the name of Victoria's noble father. Alistair. That is too close to Alistair Crowley to be a coincidence. Also, Alistair Wren is literally first name Alistair, last name Bird. So yeah. And finally, FRCO. What does that acronym mean? Well, dear listener, one possibility is Fellow of the Royal College of Organists, which has a decidedly Royal Society sound to it. A funny choice, albeit a logical one as far as a society a British nobleman might have been a member of in the late 19th century. But set aside the letter O, and are there any other hidden meanings you might perceive? Why, yes, those letters are in fact an acronym for Fraternity of the Rosy Cross, which the Rosicrucians are frequently referred to as in the manifestos. Freighter Rosy Cross and Freighter Rosencruz would use the same letters. Now, were it not for the fact that this story-slash-chapter is literally called Under the Rose, that would probably sound crazy. But in light of Pynchon's career-long obsession with secret societies and the military, it's undeniable. The fact that the Wrens are about to depart for Cairo, and possibly the quote, Theban ruins at Luxor, end quote, builds up this Rosicrucian and Crowleyan symbolism. Crowley spent time in Egypt, of course, and it was also in the desert of North Africa that Crowley invoked the demon Koranzon. Sometime around 1909, I believe. Oh, and Crowley was also an English spy. And then you have the modern Rosicrucian syncretic appropriation of Egyptian mystery traditions, as found in Harvey Spencer Lewis's Amorc or uh, AMORC, which was founded in the early 1900s and had become a popular initiation by male society in the 60s 
popular enough that Leonard Cohen would reference it in his song Dress Rehearsal Rag, which we used in a previous episode. So yeah, it's likely Pynchon was familiar. And then, this may be more of a stretch, but... Pynchon name-dropping the Theban ruins of Luxor could be an allusion to the society started by Pascal Beverly Randolph that used the name Luxor. Randolph also founded a Rosicrucian society in California that would later mutate into Reuben Swinburne Clymer's Rosicrucian Order that vied with Amork and Crowley for supremacy of Rosicrucianism. A Randolph allusion would make sense, as it was Randolph, after all, that first made the sex-magic innovations that so transfigured Western occultism, and which the Golden Dawn, OTO, etc., and figures such as Crowley and Austin Osman Spare would emulate. The spy Porpentine declares that he's going to attend the party in disguise as an Italian count. And then the pair separate, Goodfellow returning to the hotel and Porpentine to the home of the friend that he's staying with in the Turkish quarter. Porpentine then starts musing about the quote-unquote situation, maybe a coded reference to the great game, and the British Empire's struggle with France for colonial dominance along the Nile. Arguments for Porpentine basically being a cipher of pension. I guess the fact that both names start with a P. It also appears that Porpentine and Porcupine may derive from Old French, and Pynchon appears to be a reference to a place in France. Anyways, Porpentine goes on to reflect about how his opposite number Moldwarp's tendency has been to harass and that all he has ever asked is that there be a war. Big quote. Not just a small incidental skirmish in the race to carve up Africa, but one pip-pip, jolly ho, up goes the balloon Armageddon for Europe. Once Porpentine might have been puzzled that his opposite number should desire war so passionately. Now he took it for granted that at some point in these fifteen years of hare and hounds, he himself had conceived the private mission of keeping off Armageddon. An alignment like this, he felt, could only have taken place in a Western world, where spying was becoming less an individual than a group enterprise, where the events of 1848 and the activities of anarchists and radicals all over the continent seemed to proclaim that history was being made no longer through the virtue of single princes, but rather by man in the mass 
by trends and tendencies and impersonal curves on a lattice of pale blue lines. So it was inevitably single combat between the veteran spy and il semplice inglese. They stood alone, God knew where, on deserted lists. Goodfellow knew of the private battle, as doubtless did Moldwarp's subordinates. They all took on the roles of solicitous seconds, attending to the strictly national interests, while their chiefs circled and parried above them on some unreachable level. It happened that Porpentine worked nominally for England and Moldwarp for Germany, but this was accident. They would probably have chosen the same sides had their employments been reversed. Big end quote. Hearing the talk of European-wide war, described as, quote, Armageddon for Europe, end quote, I can't help but feel like Pynchon is slyly suggesting the Thirty Years' War and the Protestant and Catholic forces wrestling match to establish an eschatological world empire, and apocalyptic world empire, as the historical backdrop of this story, one that's literally called Under the Rose. Porpentine goes on to describe how he and Moldwarp are cut from the same cloth. Quote, Machiavellians, still playing the games or Renaissance Italian politics in a world that had outgrown them. End quote. Evidently, Moldwarp had once attempted to assassinate Porpentine in the what sounds like a British expat hotel called the Hotel Bristol in Naples. Also, Moldwarp appears to be a Germanic version of Moldwarp, a European mole and a word that Shakespeare may have coined. So we've got another Shakespearean reference here. Porpentine is worried that the British colonist Kitchener, who is marching south along the Nile, is going to bring Britain into conflict with the French, thus setting off a world war, in essence. Porpentine and Goodfellow's covert mission appears to be to protect the anti-war politician Lord Cromer from any assassination attempts. Later that evening, Porpentine meets Goodfellow and the Wrens in a restaurant, Speaking of which, the sleaze Goodfellow says that Mildred is all right at one point, even though she's only 11. That's the younger Wren's sister. While in the restaurant, they're joined by the crazed archaeologist Hugh Bongo Shaftesbury, who arrives in a hawk mask representing the Egyptian deity Harmachis, god of Heliopolis and patron deity of Lower Egypt. Porpentine has a vision where the restaurant is swallowed by apocalyptic fire, 
and he remembers a secret document that he was shown that prophesied or disclosed that the meeting between the colonial forces of Kitchener and his French counterpart, Marchand, will take place on September 25th, which is only a few days away. Remember how we previously stated that the name Porpentine is also a reference to Shakespeare's play, The Comedy of Errors? Note how that work of Shakespeare's takes place in ancient Greece, and is almost entirely about doubles slash twins. Twins that were separated when their family was caught in a shipwreck, and the comedy ensues when they later meet each other and keep having these moments of mistaken identity. The double is, of course, a fertile motif of spy and detective literature. So there you go. At the restaurant, another apparent spy named Lepsius joins them. Lepsius being a reference to the Austrian Karl Richard Lepsius, who some consider the father of Egyptology and another joint in the power structure constructed from the academy and intelligence agencies. Skipping forward a bit, the party consisting of the Wrens and the spies board a train for Cairo. Alistair, Victoria, and Goodfellow in one car, and Porpentine, Mildred, and Bongo Shaftesbury in another. There's a weird moment where that bonkers bongo opens a panel on his arm, claiming to the young Mildred that he is basically an electrical automaton, and that he has wiring running all the way to his brain. Mildred is spooked in the presence of these spooks, and Porpentine yells for him to knock it off. At that exact moment, they suddenly hear Goodfellow yelling from the other car. They race inside to find that he's being attacked by an Arab man who is attempting to assassinate him. The assailant is chased off, but Goodfellow lets him go to everyone's amazement. Goodfellow then starts to lecture the party on the importance of Christian charity which could maybe be another reference to the Rosicrucian manifestos, which laid out the few rules that Rosicrucians are supposed to follow, one being Christian charity, including ministering to the ill and infirm. In Cairo, Porpentine later spies Lepsius and the Arab man speaking to each other briefly off to the side. Porpentine receives an encrypted letter from his superiors, which claims that they hadn't suspected any assassination plots. Curious timing. He goes out into the streets of Cairo that night, searching for information, and enlists a pimp named Varkumian to help him who claims to know every assassin in Cairo. 
when he returns to his hotel, there's this slapstick sequence where he falls off his balcony and ends up smoking a cigarette under roses, and then climbs up a tree and observes Goodfellow weeping into Victoria's arms because of his impotence and inability to consummate, evidently. He then gives them time to get dressed before entering the hotel room. The next day, more spy caper slapstick shit goes down. Porpentine spies on Alistair playing atrocious organ music in a church. Porpentine is followed all day by Victoria, who eventually confronts him in a bar, revealing how easily she found him. Varkumian returns, revealing that he has zero information on any assassination attempts on Lord Cromer. What Porpentine does learn is that Cromer isn't protecting himself. So he decides to take matters into his own hands, coming up with the archetypal harebrained scheme of trying to concoct a quote-unquote scare to put Lord Cromer on high alert. On the faded day of September 25th, Porpentine disguises himself as an Irishman and throws a bomb at the lawn of the consulate, but accidentally sends it through a window, terrorizing a group of women. The bomb ends up being a dud, luckily, and Goodfellow nearly gets arrested in the process. Porpentine and Goodfellow discover that the meeting between the French and the English has already occurred, and they start freaking out. They learn that Cromer is attending the opera that night. They get seats behind the consul, but are then thrown out by policemen. A fight ensues outside of the opera, and the two spies knock out the cops, hiding their unconscious bodies in bushes. They sneak back into the opera house. Porpentine sees that the archaeologist Bongo Shaftesbury is standing in a box adjacent to him, pointing a pistol at Lord Cromer. Simultaneously, he hears the voice of Moldwarp, the veteran spy, who had been seated behind them the entire time. Porpentine reacts instinctively, shooting his single-shot pistol into the opera crowd. Curiously unsure himself whether he's aiming at Bongo or Lord Cromer. Hmm... Almost some P2K shit there, and shades of the Lincoln assassination as well. Moldwarp then rattles off one of those I've-got-you-you're-cornered-villain soliloquies, stating that his team of spies and assassins outnumbers Porpentines. Porpentine tells Moldwarp to, quote, go away and die, end quote before he and Goodfellow flee. Next, Porpentine and Goodfellow pursue their opponents in a phaeton, a horse-drawn carriage, heading for the pyramids, stopping along the way to fetch Victoria Wren. 
It's at this point that Porpentine has a vision of a massive bell-shaped curve in the sky, and begins to wonder when it was exactly that his life became a battle against a quote-unquote force contrary to people. He sees a mystical parabola, the implication being that it is the otherworldly force driving Moldwarp's decision-making. They abandon their carriage by the Sphinx and are searching for their adversaries. Porpentine, isolated, if I remember correctly, is captured by Bongo Shaftesbury, who is aware that Porpentine has already fired the solitary shot in his pistol. Porpentine then realizes that when he said, go away and die, he was speaking to himself. Bongo kills him. The story next skips ahead some 15 years, and Goodfellow, now an aging agent, is stationed in Sarajevo, where he is tasked with protecting the Archduke Ferdinand. And we all know how that goes. So, how to make sense of this early spy narrative of pensions? T.P. himself speaks of it as his attempt at understanding the historical trends from the individual heroism of antiquity to the societal and collective forces of modernity representing the battle between the personal and statistical readings of history, and the micro-version of these larger historical trends within the story is Porpentine's discomfort with his recognition that the very nature of spying is changing from the heroic spy adventure of the past to the impersonal and statistical. Coded into this is, of course, similar themes of technological advancement and its impact on intelligence, as demonstrated by the character of Bongo Shaftesbury and his bionic arm. Similarly, coded into the symbolism are questions of conformity and historical trends towards fascism. From references to Machiavelli and Porpentine's complaints about the robotic nature of the younger spies. In the climax of the story, Porpentine has the wool pulled away from his eyes and loses his innocent belief in the pulp fictiony nature of intelligence work. Instead, Coming to realize that the great game between the agencies of various countries are actually mechanisms of larger, non-human forces in the universe, almost like deterministic forces of death and decay. The parallels that Pynchon draws between intelligence agencies and secret societies and especially Rosicrucianism, makes sense within the larger historical trends that he's confronting. For example, 
the heroic chivalric context of the history of the Middle Ages that gave way to the secret societal dynamics of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and beyond. Similarly, the Rosicrucian imagery makes sense within his own admitted interest in the apocalyptic Christian urge and its impact on world affairs. You'll remember all the time we've spent talking about the occulted and Rosicrucian Protestant desire to see material and educational reforms bring about the end times. The darker flip side of this impulse is evinced by the capacity for such beliefs to contribute to war and even the dropping of nuclear bombs, themes that Pynchon identifies in Under the Rose in his introduction to the story collection Slow Learner. Now, if we were to use Under the Rose as a key to deciphering the early years of Pynchon's personal life, I can't help but speculate whether Pynchon, in his years in the Navy, could have been involved in espionage himself around the time of the Suez Crisis. The fact that Under the Rose takes place, at least in part, in Egypt, seems like it has to be more than coincidental. Although Pynchon, in the intro to Slow Learner, claims that he stole everything about Libya and Egypt from a guidebook that was published by a German named Karl Baedeker Baedeker in 1898— These could easily be false tracks, an attempt at obscuring speculation about the time that Pynchon actually spent in the area. Regardless, we do know that Pynchon was stationed on the USS Hank in the Mediterranean at the time of the crisis, so it could be absolutely nothing, or there could be something there. If Pynchon was involved in espionage himself, then it doesn't feel like that much of a reach to interpret Porpentine as representative of Pynchon's grappling with his role as a cog within the larger espionage apparatuses of empire. I guess an argument for this possibility would be that the younger Pynchon as a young writer and younger man, is likely to be more confessional in his work than he might have been as an older and more experienced author, or at the very least maybe less practiced at authorial obsec. But honestly, I'm not enough of a pension head to say one way or the other. That said, Another argument for a Roman Auclay analysis of Under the Rose, or at least some merging of fact and fiction in the story, would be that Pynchon's very first published story, The Small Rain, is sourced from a story told to him by someone he knew during his Signal Corps days. Here's a quote from the intro 
to Slow Learner on the theme of the atomic bomb in Under the Rose. Quote, I don't mean to make light of this. Our common nightmare, the bomb, is in there too. It was bad enough in 59 and is much worse now, as the level of danger has continued to grow. There was never anything subliminal about it, then or now, except for that succession of the criminally insane who have enjoyed power since 1945, including the power to do something about it. Most of the rest of us poor sheep have always been stuck with simple standard fear. I think we have all tried to deal with this slow escalation of our helplessness and terror in the few ways open to us, from not thinking about it to going crazy from it. Somewhere on this spectrum of impotence is writing fiction about it. Occasionally, as here, offset to a more colorful time and place. And that's the end of the pension quote from the introduction. He admits that Porpentine is lifted from Shakespeare, and that Moldwarp is Old Teutonic for mole. I didn't think about it earlier, but the espionage connotations of mole are so obvious. Yet another pension pun. And it makes sense with the fact that Moldwarp literally has a mole, Bongo Shaftesbury, in Porpentine and Goodfellow's party. Pynchon denies that this is intentional, but come on. Pynchon also describes that as a young writer, he possessed like an antipathy for the autobiographical in fiction. So another possible interpretation of the obviously autobiographical in his early work could be that it made its way in almost despite his best efforts, maybe a byproduct of the inevitable limits of the imagination. Perhaps another source of his insatiable impulse for wordplay. Then again, there's still that part of me that feels Pynchon is a master of the limited hangout. Wink, wink. Okay, I'm understandably exhausted so we're going to have to leave this here. Maybe we'll return to TP and the implications of his colonial legacy and his handling of Rosicrucianism and the way he's embedded his own history in his work in the next EP. But that's all for now, folks. Shit. Shit. Okay, just kidding. I knew that there was more Rosicrucian symbolism in the story, and I think our argument for Under the Rose as an encrypted mapping of the relationships between espionage, secret societies, and the occult is growing more convincing. I thought I was winded, but then I looked up the name Shaftesbury. Remember the archaeologist, Bongo. And I knew that I recognized it. Well, Shaftesbury is a reference to the peerage that is the Earl of Shaftesbury, 
And the first Earl of Shaftesbury was none other than Lord Anthony Ashley Cooper, who during the English Civil Wars vacillated from royalist to parliamentarian and then back again. It was his support of the Stuart Restoration and King Charles that led to him receiving his lordship. Dude, this really connects all the encoded themes. The theme of imperialism and colonization in Pynchon's work, for example, is borne out by the fact that Lord Ashley, the first Earl of Shaftesbury, was the patron of John Locke and one of the noblemen proprietors of the Carolina Company, not only commissioning Locke's drafting of the Carolina Constitutions, which we previously mentioned legalized slavery in Carolina, but also employing Locke as his secretary. Shaftesbury was literally the president of the Board of Trade, and was one of those earliest fellows of the Royal Society. The Earl of Shaftesbury connects the motifs of Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, and the Royal Society. Christopher Wren, too, was a Freemason and FRS, or Royal Society Fellow. The symbological axis brings the whole cast of English secret societal colonizers into the larger thematic universe of Under the Rose. Not just Christopher Wren, Bacon, Shaftesbury, and Shakespeare, but John Locke, Robert Moray, Winthrop the Younger, Robert Boyle, etc. Word. Under the Rose isn't the only pension piece weighted with Rosicrucian symbolism and references. Rosicrucianism also figures in Mason and Dixon. It's been a long time since I read it, so I don't remember specific examples, but I did just check annotations to confirm it. And Amork is also referenced in Inherent Vice, which tracks, as that book is set in California in the 1970s and Amork fits neatly into that part-fictional, part-historic, occult milieu of that time and setting, what with their Grand Lodge at the Greco-Egyptian Rosicrucian Park in San Jose. Okay, and remember how Porpentine has the vision of the bell curve, or parabola, in the sky, while they're chasing after Moldwarp and his moles. Well, I'm getting this by way of an artist named... What was it? John Coulthart's blog post on Pynchon and the TV show Lodge 49, which contains numerous references to Gravity's Rainbow. The show is honestly fucking great. I need to finish it. It only ran for two seasons, and I made it partway through the second, but didn't wrap it up. The most reductive synopsis is that it's about a broke beach bum surfer who recently lost his dad and who decides to 
join this kind of moth-eaten lodge of a local initiatic fraternity called the Order of the Lynx. Anyways, it's this evocative melange of, like, class critique, comedy, mysticism, and alchemy. I was doing some Google searches on Thomas Pynchon and Rosicrucianism, and I found this blog post, and in it, the blogger mentions the Rosicrucian alchemical parabola allegory, aka the parabola of Medantinus, or Medatinus. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Medathinus, Medatinus. The parabola is a prosaic allegory that seems super analogous to the Fama Fraternitatis and Confessio. So yeah, further evidence of the theme of Rosicrucianism in Under the Rose. The allegory relates a dreamlike journey of an unnamed narrator who, after many trials, finally gains entrance into the Rose Garden in time to witness the marriage of the king and queen, which involves their dissolution and reconstitution, images likely containing esoteric alchemical meaning. The allegory bears more than a passing resemblance to the chemical wedding, and was later used by the Viennese psychologist Herbert Sibler in his analysis of Freudian dream interpretation. Anyways, one or two other examples from Pynchon's oeuvre that hint at how conversant he is with Rosicrucianism and alchemical themes. It seems he has a lasting interest in symbols and glyphs, as shown by the parabola in Under the Rose, and the muted posthorn around which much of the action in The Crying of Lot 49 revolves. Speaking of the symbol of Tristero, which Oedipamas is trying to interpret and understand, gotta say that it's a little reminiscent of John Dee's Monas Hieroglyphica. I mean, there are plenty of symbols that you could compare and contrast with the muted posthorn, but based on all of the Rosicrucian symbolism and illusions that we've sifted out of Pynchon so far, gonna go out on a limb and guess that TP was more than aware of the English magus who conjured English colonization in the New World. Maybe some of you real pension heads will disagree, but I think we've put together some pretty compelling evidence of Pynchon's allusions to the influence of Rosicrucianism and occultism on world affairs, espionage, and colonization in Under the Rose. We might just have to look at that uh, parabola allegory again, once I've had a chance to read the whole thing. Not to mention more Pynchon and Lodge 49. But damn, man, I gotta get out of this somewhere. Okay, I'm ripping off the band-aid. I can't keep obsessing over this stuff. And I also can't stop contradicting myself. Okay, 
one last piece of evidence propping up a possible argument of Pynchon braiding autobiography into Under the Rose. Remember Pynchon's very first short story? We mentioned it earlier, The Small Rain. Well, it concerns a young New York Army specialist named Levin who is sent to set up a crisis center in a college following a hurricane in a Louisiana town. The premise seems to be taken wholesale from an actual hurricane that decimated a town in Louisiana in 1957. And as Winston notes in The Quest for Pension, the disaster happened during Pynchon's time in the Navy, and Winston speculates that may very well have been deployed there. If Pynchon's very first published short story, which had to have been composed during his second stint at Cornell because of the events replicated in it, is based on his own experiences in total or even in part, it seems likely that other material written around the same time would also be at least somewhat confessional, namely under the rose. Well, that concludes episode 5 of Parapower Mapping. If you enjoy our freewheeling investigations and the secret history of Massachusetts, please like, rate, and review the show so that other unsuspecting listeners might discover the mythic symbolism and sympathetic magic of the Maypole Rite, our thorough mapping of the Rosicrucian slavery-pushing alchemists of New England, and the time that Pynchon pinched a purple witch's teat which sent the Parsons to prison. Oh yeah, and I'm also supposed to practice the Patreon bit, even though it isn't live yet. But this way y'all at least know that there's going to be a Patreon, and you can prime yourselves to subscribe when the time comes. Alright, here we go. <clears throat> if you've got a hankering for even more para-power mapping, make sure to subscribe on Patreon so that I can find the time to produce the tons of premium content, synchronous deep dives, and parapolitical power maps planned for future episodes. Thanks for listening. Stay critical, critters. And make sure to return next week as we conclude our history of John Winthrop the Younger's alchemical plantation, take a look at his alchemical medical practice, and finally explore the implications of his Royal Society membership and governorship of Connecticut. Bye for now.
I'm too slim to swim.